Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Natasha Bertrand, a White House correspondent for Politico, who writes about national security. Despite the common wisdom that the Biden administration is a very quiet one, Natasha had a very busy week. First, the president announced that after 20 years, the U.S. would be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. That decision, as Natasha reported, was made despite appeals from military leadership to remain in the country. Then the U.S. imposed sweeping sanctions on Russia, as President Biden plans a summit in the coming months with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I called up Natasha on Friday morning to talk about all that news, what it's like covering the Biden administration after four years of Trump, reporting on the White House during a pandemic, and how she got her start in journalism. Natasha, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I can imagine it's been a very busy week for you. Yes, a lot of foreign policy news, um, Afghanistan and Russia sanctions, et cetera. So it's been it's been busy, but interesting. We have a lot to talk about then. Uh, I wanted to start with uh, President Joe Biden's announcement uh, of the U.S. withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Now, you had a great report on that this week describing how Biden became the first president in decades to basically override military advisors and end U.S. involvement in that war. Could you walk us through what happened? Yeah, that's my dog there. Um, look, so so Biden, uh, when he was vice president, he he was one of the one of the lone kind of advisors um, pushing Obama not to listen to the generals and to kind of get out of Afghanistan and not get boxed in um, by the Pentagon on this issue. And you know, 10, 10 11 years later he finally was able to to have his way here. Um, he was obviously overruled during the Obama administration and Obama did not follow his advice. But as president, um, you know, this is something that Biden kind of came into having made up his mind is what we're told. Um, he knows the issue very well. Um, he has, he's visited Afghanistan many times. He understands um, the policy implications. He understands the geopolitical implications. And he just, even, you know, given all of the advice that he was getting from his advisors, from the Pentagon, um, he, he just knew that it was time in his mind to, to end the war and to pull out. Um, and that's why we saw that he made this not conditions-based, though he, he made, he was realistic about the timeline. And he said, look, it's going to be really hard for us to, to withdraw by May 1st, um, which is the, the deadline that the previous president had put on it. But he did want to follow through and pulling out all the troops that we do have there, which is a relatively small footprint, but it takes time mm. logistically to get to get all of these things drawn down. Um, and and really, no one no one was really gonna gonna change his mind on that. And um, there was a lot of pushback again, as we reported from the Pentagon, um, that you know they said that it was kind of an unrealistic timeline. They they didn't want to stay forever, but they didn't want to pull out by September. Um, but again, you know, it was this thinking of, if not now, when we're just going to keep kicking the can down the road in a way that the past, you know, few presidents have. And if we don't get out, then it's just going to be passed on to the next president. And that's not something that Biden wanted to do. Um, the, the influence um, of his late son, Bo, obviously hung kind of heavy over that. Um, Bo was in the army and he, he did deploy to Iraq. And so Biden kind of feels the weight of being a, a uh, you know, military dad on his soldier on his shoulder shoulders as well. So you know, it was both a personal decision. It was a political decision. It was a decision about what's in the best interests of the United States. And he did not feel that staying any longer um, and dragging this out was in the best interests of of the country. 
Right. So every president since Bush has faced this question, right, of, of what to do with Afghanistan. And it's a seemingly endless conflict that hasn't shown signs of resolving in years. Obama implemented a drawdown in Iraq. Um, Trump pushed for the removal of U.S. troops from almost every country in the Middle East. And Biden was the president to finally make this call to leave Afghanistan. Do you think there was something unique about Biden that propelled that decision? You mentioned his son, Beau. Do you think that had uh, played into the decision making here? You know, it's a good question. I don't necessarily think that it played an outsized role. Um, you know, I, I do think that Biden very carefully, obviously, weighed the implications of leaving, and it was not a purely personal decision on any level. Um, but I do think, you know, and, and my colleague Alex Thompson actually had a really great piece in, in Transition Playbook about this. I do think that, that Bo's legacy and his influence over his father does weigh heavy, not only on, on this decision, but on many decisions that, that Biden has made um, in his in his couple months in office, and even before then, in terms of the personnel that he hired, in terms of his, you know, uh, approach to certain policies. So I don't think that it was negligible, but I don't think that it was obviously the biggest thing weighing over him. Um, Biden obviously voted um, for to go into Iraq um, in, in, uh, in under the George W. Bush administration. And he has said that he regrets that vote. Um, and by 2009, when he was vice president, he was pushing Obama really hard um, to get out of Afghanistan. There was this anecdote, um, you know, that was recounted in George Packer's book, um, you know, that during a private 2010 meeting with Richard Holbrook, who was then the special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, you know, Biden said, like, I'm not sending my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It just won't work. And that's not what they're there for. And he was alluding there to kind of the, the argument by uh, the foreign policy establishment that, you know, if we leave now, we're going to erase any gains that we made um, diplomatically when it comes to rights for women and children in Afghanistan. And that's, you know, that's not what we want to see. So we have to maintain a presence there. And Biden just didn't really he didn't really believe that argument. He's, he took the position, you know, plain and simple that we have to get out. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's 10 years later, condition, you know, conditions have changed. Obviously he's not, he wasn't president at the time. And so he, he didn't necessarily have to make that, that really hard decision that Obama made. Um, but, but you have to wonder how much, you know, his, his thinking has evolved on this issue in the last 10 years. And I don't think it has evolved very much, frankly. I think that he wanted to get out then. He came in wanting to get out, according to the advisors that I spoke to. I spoke to one um, recently who said, look, his mind has been made up since before he came into office on this issue. Um, and in that sense, maybe he was different from predecessors because you know, the, the Pentagon and the military have successfully argued for staying longer in the past. And this time, he he was just not really hearing it. Now, does does the military see this as a mistake? I know David Petraeus, who uh, was once the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, uh, was opposed pu publicly opposed this withdrawal. Um, do they are, are there fears perhaps that something similar is going to happen, uh, like happened in Iraq with ISIS, uh, sort of growing in in the wake of the drawdown there? There's there's a fear that. So there, there are different voices, obviously. Petraeus is among the, the much more hawkish voices mm -hmm. on this. Um, and again, there, there, there are no 
leaders at the Pentagon who would say we want to stay forever. But that's again been been the line for the last you know two decades. Um, yeah. But you know I do think there is this sense, and not only in the Pentagon but also in the State Department among very senior officials there, that if we remove this this quite small, frankly, footprint that we have in Afghanistan, that it will turn to chaos, that, you know, the Taliban will take over, that women's rights will be turned back decades and decades, and that, you know, any kind of progress that we made there is just going to be reversed immediately, and that it's mm. going to become utter chaos. Um, Biden knows that. Biden, Biden knows the risks, obviously, um, and his way of kind of calibrating that was to say that the U.S. is not going to stop engaging with Afghanistan completely. Obviously, we're still going to provide them assistance and support and, you know, engage diplomatically. Um, we're just not going to have troops there as a bargaining chip, right? So part of what the State Department and the Pentagon were arguing is that, well, if you have troops there, then it's more of a, it, it's, it compels the government and the Taliban to cooperate with the United States more because, you know, we have a presence there. Um, and the White House's position and Biden's position has been, well, we can't use these soldiers as, you know, bargaining chips. It's just not going to work. It's not a long-term solution to this. Um, so let's see if we can do this diplomatically and try to figure out a way to, to stay and not completely erase everything, you know, all of, you know, all, I say all, but some of the advances that, that have been made in the country since, since the U.S. was there. Um, so that's, that's pretty much the argument. Um, there are some people who think that it's just going to devolve into warring factions and that warlords are going to take over and that it's just going to become complete chaos. There are some people who say that, you know, the the, uh, the reversals of certain of some progress is going to be more incremental um, and more subtle. But, you know, there are, the consensus on that side of the issue is that it's going to get a lot worse and that ultimately, maybe it could pose a national security threat to the United States um, mm. if we do see a rise in, in certain terrorist groups out of that chaos. Um, that's not a calculation that the U.S. intelligence community has made necessarily, that it is a no. big national security threat to the United States. And that's something that, that Biden did address. He said, look, it, it's not in the national security interest of the United States at this point to keep our troops there. Mm. Now, you guys got some pushback on your big... Uh police and Politico on this decision from Biden from the White House. Um, I saw they, uh, they sent you a statement after publication from a National Security Council spokesperson uh, that was fairly snippy um, and complained about you guys not reaching out and said that the story was inaccurate. What happened there? Yeah, so we will, we will completely acknowledge our mistake there. Um, mm -hmm. We the lead reporter on the story is a Pentagon reporter. Um, and we had we had seen this more as a Pentagon story. And we had seen this more as a, you know, this is how the Pentagon factored into the decision here and how, yes, there was a White House element to it, obviously, and how the White House uh, responded to the Pentagon's uh, arguments here. Um, so that was, that was totally our mistake. We were working quickly. Mm. Um, we didn't put a request in for comment to NSC and we totally owned up to that um, in our conversations privately with, with the NSC. Um, we, of course, the NSC then pushed back on the substance, um, and said that, you know, the Pentagon was not cut out of, or should say Secretary, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was not cut out of this process at all, that his views were weighed, um, and that it was a very inclusive process. Um, we would argue that that's, that we didn't necessarily report otherwise. We would just argue that, mm. you know, our reporting indicates that the president and the White House really drove this process, 
um, which is what other outlets have reported as well. I don't think it's an anomaly in that sense. And that, you know, the president and his close, close advisors, which includes Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, you know, that they were, were the ones that were, you know, making this decision ultimately. And I think that the White House, the White House would agree with that. I mean, he is the commander in chief. Mm. Um, and while he weighs the advice of all of his advisors, you know, he also values people that have been with him the longest. Joe Biden really values that. He values friendships and loyalty. And, you know, Lloyd Austin is not necessarily in that very tight knit inner circle. And that is, that is just a fact. He, Biden obviously trusts him. He appointed him, but he has not been with him for a long time in a way that some of his, his other advisors have been. And so, yes, we, we would agree, obviously, based on our sources and based on our conversations, that this was an inclusive process, that it was very uh, deliberative and comprehensive. Um, but, you know, it's true. It's just true that this was a process that was driven by, by the White House and by Biden's, by his conviction that this war needed to end. Yeah, I feel like administrations are always going to be particularly sensitive about reporting on internal debates, especially when one side that has lost out on the debate is identified, um, right? Because that goes obviously goes into the history books. Um, now, I have a, a reporting question, a sort of general one. I'm wondering what it's like covering the Biden administration after four years of President Donald Trump. Is it harder to get stories? I mean, the, the Trump White House was obviously leaky to an infamous degree. I think it's harder, but in a good way. Um, okay. I think that it, I think that it forces journalists to be more deliberative and more substantive in their reporting. And I've actually really enjoyed it because I found that it allows us to focus more on, you know, actual policy issues. Um, and yes, there is always going to be some palace intrigue stories. There's always going mm. to be the stories about the debates that go on inside the White House, because that is part of history, right? That is part of the deliberations that inevitably take place with any kind of policy decision, with any kind of, you know, the, the, the push and the pull and the back and the forth that goes on in, in administrations is interesting to people. It's, and I think that it's it's a public service to, to report it because you can see that there were different positions taken on a particular thing. Um, obviously administrations don't like that. And, and some people on the internet think that Politico is a bit too engaged in that stuff. But this mm. is, you know, the, we are, you know, this is a DC publication. This is a publication focused on politics and policy. And I think that this administration has really allowed us to get back to that. Um, you know, it was a scramble every time Trump tweeted. It was a scramble every time he said something completely outrageous. And it really caused you to kind of lose sight of the big picture a lot of the time. Um, this administration is a bit slower. You know, this week may be an exception. There was a lot that went on this week. Um, but it forces you to make, you know, instead of just figuring out who's sniping at each other and figuring out who's going to leak more or whatever, it forces you to build more substantive relationships and, you know, engage in good faith with with people who are serious about serious issues. Mm. Um, so yes, it's been, it's been, uh, you know, not necessarily as fast paced, but I think that it's it's making, or at least I feel like it's making me a better journalist. And I, I agree. I, it does seem like, I mean, obviously the, the stories that you're covering are almost more substantive because I remember my favorite example is in the Trump years, I forget which year it was, but one morning Trump woke up and started tweeting about South African farmers. 
And it felt like everyone in the DC press course suddenly like had to figure out what was going on with the South African farmers and like studied it, figured out what was going on, filed stories on it. And then a couple of days later, Trump had moved on. And it was like three days of a news cycle that was completely pointless. And I think he probably saw it on Tucker Carlson or something, got fixated on it and, and sort of the reporters had to scramble to cover it. Whereas now there's like the decisions are deliberative the, the, they're, they, they're meaningful. Um, they're not going to be reversed the next week. So it's like, it's almost like the, the reporting is more substantive, um, which I can imagine for you on, on the beat that you're, you're on is, is a more interesting thing to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when Trump would tweet about, you know, uh, he would tweet, tweet outrageous videos that were, you know, filled with like white supremacist dog whistles, you know, things yeah. like that. Those things would be chased for days on end, trying mm -hmm. to find rhyme or reason to why he would tweet that or the insults or whatever. Um, you know, it was kind of all hands on deck moment for anyone that was covering politics in DC. Mm -hmm. And it, it just didn't allow for as much investigative reporting. You know, I think there was a lot of that, obviously, but, you know, imagine if we didn't have to chase all of that stuff um, <laughs> constantly, what, what could have, uh, what could have, proliferated. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think this allows journalists a little bit more space to, to get back to what actually matters. Um, some, some may, may be, uh, you know, upset that there's not as many leaks. Um, this is a very disciplined White House and a very disciplined administration. Um, but, but again, like I, I see it as a net positive. Now, has the pandemic, I mean, this is sort of a, an obvious yes, but like how, how has the pandemic affected your reporting? Are you reporting from home most days or do you make it into the White House and the Pentagon or, or are you on site or are you mostly working from home on the phones? So when it comes to the White House, the pandemic has really limited White mm. House reporters. Um, there is, for safety reasons, obviously, there are a lot of restrictions on how many journalists can be on the White House complex at any one time. Um, and for that reason, we do rotations. So I don't really know how it is at other outlets, but at Politico, like we, we rotate the reporters that go through. Um, and so if we wanna be on the White House complex at any time, other than our designated date uh, per our rotation, then we need to, um, we need to get, you know, we need to make an appointment, we need to get tested, we need to get tested anyway, but it just takes up a lot of time and it's just really, uh, and, and you can't go to the briefings that day if you're not mm. on the rotation. So it's just it's just very limited. Um, so it's been tough in that sense because you can't just kind of, whereas if you used to, you know, be if you used to have a hard pass, you could just walk on whenever, you know, and, and go to the briefings and the briefing rooms were packed and you could kind yeah. of just roam around. Um, it's very much not like that anymore. So you have to be creative and you have to kind of talk to people and find sources in other ways. Um, so that's been hard, but it's also been tough just because, you know, I'm kind of naturally an extrovert and I enjoy, you know, meeting with people and going out and like talking to sources and being in the room and things like that. And so in the depths of the pandemic last year, it was like really hard, <laughs> not, not just like professionally, but also personally, it was like, and I know a lot of journalists who felt the same way. It's kind of like, oh my God, you know, we went from having this very, you know, public facing um, job, which is part of the reason why we got into it to begin with, because we love talking to people to like, you know, now just kind of sitting at our desks, not going into the office, not engaging with our colleagues as much, at least not face to face, um, and having to adjust to this life. But, you know, after a year of doing it, it's, you know, you, you adjust. Um, and it's gotten easier in terms of coordinating, you know, with colleagues on stories and, 
it's seamless now in terms of Zoom and Slack. Um, but hope you know, I think we all hope to get back to normal at some point um, because it is just such a collaborative mm -hmm. industry. Like I don't remember the last time I had a solo byline on something. Like I love working with my colleagues and when you're in a newsroom and you're kind of in that atmosphere, ideas just kind of flow naturally and you can bounce them off each other. And it just, you know, it's just ideas just kind of flourish that way. So, so yeah, it's been tough, but you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. It's so much more conducive to like crafting stories when you're in a, a single office together. And, uh, but yeah, I, to your point, I, I remember there was a, t there was a point in like, I think it was around April when my source list had just completely dried up because I wasn't going <laughs> to like coffees or drinks with anyone anymore. And it was like, Oh, exactly. I actually have to like now. I, so I've, I tried to, I made a, a, an effort to like start texting everyone aggressively and like <laughs> getting on the phone with people and stuff, but it was, it was harder. Um, but yeah, I think we'll be back to that soon, I'm sure. Um, now, just one more question about the sort of previous administration to the current one. Are the White House staffers you're dealing with more professional now? I mean, I, I've i reached out for comment to Seb Gorka, for example, he used to work in the Trump administration for a comment request. And it was like one of the more bizarre experiences that I've ever been put through. Uh, and I think it must be different now dealing with a White House that is like mostly staffed with like career professionals. Um, do you notice a difference there or is that sort of not a, not a noticeable change in, in the way the White House is staffed? It's definitely noticeable. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, uh, people are very responsive. Um, okay. It's actually, it's a very, it's a very professional um, press operation. Obviously, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, that Politico obviously had a very public snafu with yes. the White House press corps, with the White House press operation. Um, Being decidedly unprofessional yes. <laughs> for, um, for, and, for White House. And exactly. And I will say that that was, you know, we can just spell it out for people. You know, one of one of the press people, I said very inappropriate things to mm. a reporter of ours at Politico. And he was fired and ultimately. Politico kept it uh, kept it internally, did not uh, you know publish anything on it or anything like that, or you know, uh, and then it was reported. Uh, I think a month later or a couple weeks later by Vanity Fair um, that he had said these things to a Politico reporter, and uh, he was then suspended and then ultimately resigned. I think. Um, yes, exactly. So that was really an isolated incident. And mm -hmm. um, that otherwise, you know, my dealings with. Uh, the press people there and the spokespeople has been very professional and very uh, in good faith, um, very cooperative. You know, actually, it's um, that the the press people there are very eager to connect you with the right people who are willing to talk to you about the specific issue that you're working on. Um, so it's not just you know the spokespeople kind of speculating on an issue. It's always very informed, um, and. That was, you know, granted, I can't really compare it apples to apples with the previous administration because I didn't cover the White House specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but when I did have to reach out to comments to the press White House, it was obviously a very different experience because they just hated the press. You know, yeah. that was just it. So performatively, um, too. It was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there were certain reporters that the previous administration was fine working with, especially some of the lower level press people um, mm -hmm. who had good working relationships with certain journalists, um, because you need that. Right. I mean, they would, you know, they just, you just need that. Um, but but this this administration, you know, just talking to my colleagues and in my own experience, it's been uh, it's been pleasantly uh, different.
Yeah, because that the 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 TJ Ducklow blow up that was funny in how Trumpian it was, and it was like the first major press scandal of the for the the Biden administration, and it and it did feel like a complete outlier compared to you know the assumptions of, of how the Biden behave uh, administration would behave, um, but it does seem like it was an isolated incident. Um, did you ever have to deal with Seb Gorka? I'm just curious. <laughs> no, never. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've he was. He was. Uh, He's a character. Um, he obviously is no longer um, no longer in the White House. He had some odd job uh, in the administration that he got named to uh, in like the final weeks of the Trump administration. But now he's uh, I remember that. Now he's hosting a show at Newsmax, so he's he's no he's no longer on your beat. A um, good fit for him. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so there was some other big news on your beat this week. Uh, the United States imposed pretty sweeping sanctions on Russia. Um, could you tell us what what's happening there? Yeah, so uh, these sanctions were imposed following a very lengthy review that the administration did with regard to its Russia policy. And basically they were trying to figure out, they were trying to calibrate the relationship again after the Trump administration. And they were trying to determine what a proportional response would be to the SolarWinds hacking campaign, which was this massive espionage campaign targeting um, dozens of federal and private companies in the US and uh, the election interference efforts that happened in 2020 um, surrounding kind of Ukraine and uh, you know um, allegations about Biden's corruption in Ukraine, his son's corruption in Ukraine, all that. Um, so this was an attempt to respond to that with pretty strong sanctions. I think you know a lot of experts wish that you know it would have gone farther, especially when it comes to sanctioning this massive you know, Russia to Germany gas pipeline called Nord Stream 2. Um, that is a, that would be a major geopolitical victory um, if, if it were completed for Russia. But by and large, um, it was a very strong message to Putin that the US is going to retaliate for mm -hmm. their malign behavior and not only in the United States, but also in the region at large. Um, there is a little bit of confusion um, about why the president decided to propose a summit with Putin, um, kind of like a day before <laughs> announcing all of these sanctions and announcing diplomatic expulsion. For this summer, the right? US. They're like for this summer in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know some of some of his advisors even are a little bit like, hmm, that's <laughs> that's interesting. Um, but you know, it's consistent with the position of his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, um, and his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, which is that, you know, above all, what they want with Russia is stability and predictability. Mm -hmm. And they feel like there's really, they don't want to reset with Russia. They don't want to like go to Russia and say, okay, you know, your past is forgiven. We're just going to move forward and pretend like none of that ever happened. Um, but they do want a situation where it's possible to work with Russia and other areas like nuclear issues, climate, perhaps counterterrorism, though that's a little bit more iffy. Um, and, you know, they don't want a situation where there's no talking at all and then misunderstandings happen and, mm. you know, there's just kind of a disconnect there. So they do want some kind of dialogue and engagement with Russia, whether a summit, which would be largely performative, is the best way to do that um, because nothing substantive ever really comes out of summits. Yeah. It's mostly just like a, you know, a bilateral meeting where they can just show the world that they're kind of, you know, talking um, is, is another question. But I think that, you know, the, the sanctions and the diplomatic expulsions were uh, were an interesting first step in, in their 
Russia policy. One little detail in the sanctions news that has caused a bit of a stir is the level of confidence around the CIA's conclusion that Russia offered bounties for the killing of American troops in Afghanistan, which was a huge story last year um, when I think the New York Times was first to report it. Now, uh, I read a couple different reports on this, and like the Daily Beast described this as a walk back of the initial stories. The New York Times did not, um, and they did not describe it as sort of like a reversal. What's your take on on this saga about these bounties? So I think it's much more nuanced than mm. it being a walk back. Uh, I don't think that's right, actually. Um, the intelligence was never corroborated. The intel was always low to moderate confidence. Mm. And speaking to our sources last year when the New York Times broke the story initially, that was the consensus is that Yes, we have this intelligence. Um, no, it hasn't been corroborated, but it is serious enough and it is alarming enough to brief to the president and to put in his daily briefing. Not everything that's put in the daily briefing has to be high, high confidence that's corroborated beyond a reasonable doubt, whatever. And that was where the controversy was. The controversy was that Trump was denying that he was ever briefed on it. And that was just not believable. And people were wondering, well, why is he downplaying this and saying that he wasn't briefed on it when he should be confronting Russia about it, regardless of whether the intelligence community has super high confidence in it. The Biden administration yesterday said something that is very consistent with that, which is we have low to moderate confidence. The, the intel community has low to moderate confidence in this because it came primarily, and this is a detail that we didn't necessarily know, it came primarily from detainee reporting, which is a veiled way of saying the detainees said this, mm -hmm. but it may not be accurate because they may have been, been just saying that to get out of detention. Um, but there are other kind of circumstantial things, and I think the New York Times reported on this as well, that lend credence to the idea that the Russians did have this program and that they intended to carry it out. Things like financial transfers, for example, around that kind of program that, that concerned intelligence officials. What the disagreement was is that, yes, we have this low to medium moderate confidence, but we can't specifically tie any particular attacks to this alleged program. So that makes it even harder, right? Because you're getting this information from detainees. It's a very challenging operating environment in Afghanistan. But, and you also can't say with certainty that these people were killed because Russia put a bounty out for them. Um, so the whole thing is just, it's not corroborated, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging, but that doesn't mean that you don't go to the Kremlin and say, what's going on here? You need to explain what we're hearing, you know, through diplomatic channels. It's not like the Biden administration came out and said, we know that Russia is doing this and tried to embarrass them on the international stage over it. Mm. They said tactfully, we're going to talk to them through diplomatic and intelligence channels about this, which is further than the Trump administration went. And so I don't think it was a walk back. I think it was an acknowledgement, a frank acknowledgement of the quality of the intelligence and, you know, a proportional response to that, which for now, until it's higher confidence, until maybe you can tie an attack to a bounty, um, then you just talk to them about it diplomatically. Yeah, because like from what I could tell from the reporting, it was they were basically saying that they weren't uh, enacting any sanctions on the basis of that and explaining Correct. why. And yeah, I mean, I, I th thank you for clearing that up because it, I've seen a lot of like 
media critics like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald use that as a, a sort of, you know, evidence that media sort of buys into these narratives and runs with them and then it becomes, you know, fact. Um, and they, a lot of them have been painting this as this like grand reversal um, from an original story, which I took a closer look at it and it didn't seem like that, but it's always good to have someone who uh, reports on it uh, in depth. Now, uh, I just want to ask you a little bit about your career um, to end this. Uh, you've had quite an impressive one as a journalist. Um, how did you break into the industry? Thank you. Um, I, well, I started at Business Insider, um, which is such a fantastic place. And I'm so thrilled at how much it's grown since I joined in 2014. Um, they just, they just give their interns and their, you know, fellows, I don't know what they call them now, but I was an intern and they just give, they just gave us so much freedom to experiment and so much, um, you know, responsibility and they really just had us hit the ground running and learn reporting hands-on and that's an experience that I wouldn't trade ever and so that's really how I got into it um I started as a breaking news intern um for for BI and I was really interested you know later on in foreign policy and national security stuff um and then kind of you know Russia interfered in 2016 and I was interested in that and so I really just started kind of drilling down on, on the Russia investigation and, and, and yeah, kind of from there. But I think that, you know, I really credit BI with kind of giving me that first platform and that start because, um, you know, it's, I don't think I could have gotten the, the hands-on journalism experience like that anywhere else. Mm. Um, and then I went to the Atlantic and, and, you know, then I went to Politico and it's just been, uh, I've had great editors the whole way through, which has been, yeah super helpful. You were a staff writer at the Atlantic and then went to Politico. I'm, I'm curious, what, what caused you to leave the Atlantic and go to Politico? Cause obviously the Atlantic's quite a, it's quite an August publication. It's very nice. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. So the Atlantic, um, I have so much respect for, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the opportunity to work there. Um, it just, you know, it, sometimes it just doesn't work out for both parties, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I felt like I wanted to do more hard news reporting and faster paced kind of breaking news stuff, you know, and some more scoop driven stories. And I think the Atlantic was still kind of more interested in like the longer form mm -hmm. explanatory, more ideas centered reporting. Um, so I just think, you know, it just wasn't a good fit for me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, because I am like a very kind of fast paced kind of, you know, news driven person, but you know, if, if I were more interested in, you know, and that's kind of the impression that I got when I, when I was hired there is that that's kind of the area they wanted to get into more. Mm. Um, but it just didn't really pan out and it just wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and, and that's why when Politico kind of came to me, um, I jumped at the opportunity because I felt like it was just a better fit. And it's it's well known as being being a scoop machine, so it's it's probably the, the the right place for you. Yes, I think that being a Politico has made me such a better reporter. Um, it's it's really just a kind of churning ground for for great journalists. So it's it's been an amazing opportunity. All right, Natasha, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and check out coverage of my conversation with Natasha Bertrand on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.